Hey, I'm Darren Steele, and I coach queer people to lead from their difference to make a difference. On the podcast and in the written word on Medium at thinkqueerly.com, I share my evolving ideas about the behaviors and qualities of queer leadership and queer leading, and how we can create a more loving and accepting society for all people. Now, before we get into the official episode today, just want to remind you, if you haven't already, or if this is your first time listening to the show, about my new book, Think Queerly, Meditations and Critical Reflections on Liberating Humanity. Now, this is a free book, and I I look at this and think, ah, this is maybe something I could have taken, and may still, and put into a print format and, and, and publish more largely, but... I want listeners to get to know me more, to get to understand how I think and where I'm coming from and really what is the background for not only how I view or perceive the world, but what are the ways of thinking that support this queer leadership and thinking queerly um, that I'm sharing here on the podcast. I want to read a testimonial about the book from Jeffrey Yovanone. He's a writer and historian, has been featured on the podcast a number of times, and you can look forward to hearing more from him soon. I am... I was basically almost speechless when I read this. Uh, Immense gratitude to him for writing this. And we always look to people whose opinions we trust, especially those who, at least for me, I critically admire for how they think and what they have to say. So hearing this, reading this from Jeffrey really means a lot. So here's what he had to say. In the 1970s, Harry Hay, founder of one of the first gay rights organizations in the world, the Mattachine Society, dared to ask the following questions. Who are we, gay people? Where have we been throughout history? What purpose might we be for? In Think Queerly, Coach Darren Steele attempts to answer these questions and invites readers to do the same. Through short aphorisms and reflections that read like a modern-day Tao Te Ching written from a queer perspective, Steele shows he is a philosopher for the people and a leader for our time. He gently but insistently urges queer people or anyone who feels they are outside of the norm to look beyond assimilationist strategies of social justice and to, as he often says, use their difference to make a difference. In doing so, Steele shows that our difference, far from something we should feel ashamed of, are our our greatest tools and sources of strength in a divided world. Think Queerly is not solely a meditation on the nature and purpose of difference, but an urgent call to inspired action. Well, <laughs> that's something I would never written about my own work, but I am, I am deeply touched and it sometimes feels awkward to explain the, the nature or the reason behind my own work. And I suppose... Seeing this as a philosophy is something that I've been endeavoring towards for a very long time. 
So you can get the book at uh, darrensteel.com. Just head on over to my website. The link will be in the show notes, but darrensteel.com slash reflections, or you'll see it in the menu at uh, the top of the website. Get my book. All right. So today's episode, Prejudice is a Drag Queen, the Loss of a Transgressive Art Form. Here's the premise. When do we call out a drag queen for thinking they have the liberty to uphold outdated social norms behind the closed doors of a gay bar when the audience is mostly older gay men? I'm going to tell you backstory, but first of all, I have been sitting on talking about this since the first weekend after New Year's Eve. I'm pretty sure it was the Sunday after New Year's Eve. My friends, my partner and I and my friends, we went out to the local bar where a lot of drag queens do their shows on Sunday night in Toronto. And I th- part of what's been making me hold off on this is because I was, I don't want to be the call out culture guy. So at this point, I think I'm deciding, and I still hadn't actually decided until I started talking. I'm not going to name names. I'll talk around it. And maybe I shouldn't name names. I don't know. But what I want to say here is that this is my opinion and this is my perspective. And I'm looking at what does this mean from a leadership perspective? What does this say about our community? What does this say about gay men in the community? And I was just reading an article this morning about internalized homophobia and gay shame and gay men who pronounce themselves as being straight acting. And there's this whole host of issues that go into this. So listen with an open mind. Be curious. Be curious to understand what it is I perceived and why I'm looking at it this way. And I'm hoping after I go through what happened and some observations that I can take you through a step-by-step process to kind of break this down, not necessarily to come to a, a formative conclusion, but a very strong observation about where we've been, where we've been and where we are now. The host of the drag show seemed to me to be pretty drunk before they even started. I didn't know who was talking. I thought the person was speaking in a foreign language because they hadn't even come on the stage yet. Their speech was so slurred. So I'm prefacing with this. This person, this drag performer, was not in a sober state of mind. I'm not excusing their behavior. But let's just start with the affect of alcohol or perhaps other substances. They're doing their stand-up, talking about New Year's Eve, and they're saying, well, it's a new year. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm transitioning. And this goes on for just a, a sentence or two, and they say, well, you know, I'm actually, I'm transitioning into a squirrel. By next, by the end, by this summer, you're going to see me with a big bushy tail. That's one thing. The next thing is that sitting by the stage was a a group of Asians. The drag performer went over, put their hands together in prayer position, bowed over, and almost like some Hollywood comedian from the 1950s, speaking in an Asian accent, 
I don't even want to do it because it's so racist. But you can imagine. The audience laughed. Myself, my partner at the table were cringing. So let's get into it. Why wasn't there any outrage? Now, I've since learned that this drag performer does this all the time, but I haven't been to see this performer for 15 or 20 years. And my memory is probably jaded in the sense of 20, 30 years ago, whenever I last saw this person perform, I really thought they were fantastic. But we also have to look at the time that that was. If they are doing now what they were doing then, I may not have perceived it back then as such or as such of a problem. But I've also grown and evolved and changed my perspective on things. But there really was a time this drag queen was funny, biting, and just... I remember them being able to interact with the audience, which I always find like the, the, uh, is a sign of great talent of a comedian when they can speak to the audience and make jokes based on what they're given as opposed to a prepared script. And it seems to be in my memory that they did not need to be drunk or high to perform or to be funny. I remember an acerbic wit. I remember them engaging with an audience in a very professional and artistic and performative way that had us in hysterics and didn't require the performer to slur or to incessantly swear. I do remember this performer was always very sexual and used swearing, and there is nothing wrong with that. I love swearing. I swear often when I need to. I fucking love it. And not everyone is naturally funny. But this person was clearly off their game from what I remember. From what I remember. Meaning, I don't know what has happened in that person's life to make them like this, or whether they've just always been like this and I didn't know. It's a challenge I have with a lot of drag performances, is that people get up stage and they're like, fuck this, fuck this bitch, and cocksucker this, and whatever the case may be. And... There's a time and a place for that, and it's like anything. If you keep saying the same phrases over and over again, the sentiment is no longer funny. It's just you being on stage, taking up space, because your ego requires you to get this recognition from other people, even if it's not the most healthy. So I want to say that this is not a microaggression. This is not me wanting to call out an individual simply because I felt offended. There was a table of us that felt offended. But this is about how we as queer people need to better represent ourselves. Even within a group in a bar where this is going on. We need to show more respect for humanity overall. And it's my purpose here to try and elevate ourselves, myself included, to be better. I had written something, if I was going to say this person's name, that it's literally time for them to take off their wig, untuck, get the makeup off their face that made up the perform, perform persona that had served them for so many years and a career. What I saw that evening 
to me, said that they were finished and they're damaged as a person. And the crowd was supporting that. It made me also question the management of the bar in allowing this kind of material to be presented where an audience supports and laughs at it, even gets up out of their chair to tip the drag performer. For what? For prejudice? For racism? For subtle transphobia? And I would say subtle because, okay, maybe there's an element of the joke that could have been funny if the word I'm transitioning or the phrase I'm transitioning wasn't part of it. They could have made a joke about becoming a squirrel with a big bushy tail that had nothing to do, even indirectly, with the challenge of gender dysphoria and transitioning. We have to do better. We must demand demand better, more of ourselves, especially of those we idolize, those who entertain us, those who represent us as queer people. Infighting doesn't serve us, but making fun of our own people Queer Asians, trans people, acting in ways that are prejudiced and bigoted harm us in more ways than we realize. We become even more oppressive within our own ranks than those who actively seek to oppress us. Now, that's a challenge for those of us who can't see it because we've grown up in a society, a status quo that says you're broken, you're not acceptable, and we can reinforce that behavior in negative ways. Now, sitting on the bar stool with my friends on that Sunday night, I felt awful. My partner was about ready to say something. I was thinking, and I asked him, should we heckle? Would it have made a difference? Should I have spoken to management? Would that have made a difference? I don't know. But I know for myself in the moment, I'll get very emotionally upset and triggered, and that's not a good time for me to have a discussion. I need to sit on it and need to think about ways in which I can respond and be curious about the situation instead of reacting emotionally. Most importantly, right now, the most important recognition and empathy and consideration needs to go to trans people. There have been periods in our movement as the gay movement and the gay and lesbian movement and then the queer movement or whatever the different names were, where different parts of the group received the greatest attention. It's primarily always been gay men and with AIDS, fuck it was gay men, right? But who's always been there as the most subversive, as the most transgressive, as the most challenging of gender and sexual identities and and representation, trans people? And yes, there's an intersection with drag and all of that. I'm not going to get into that here. There are people that are better, more capable of talking about that issue than I am. And I've spoken to a couple of friends about my ideas around this episode. So I've considered some of what they've had to say. Notably that some of us have changed, but old school drag hasn't. And I'm not saying, I'm not lumping old school drag into one simple category. Because some of the really old school drag of the 50s and the 60s and even the 70s was absolutely transgressive and so important for its time, for what it was able to do behind closed doors for our community. But there are issues of what do we value now? 
in our community. And it isn't a singular thing, community. There is no LGBTQ community. We put ourselves under that umbrella as an overall sense of belonging, but there are individuals within that group that say, hell no, I don't feel comfortable with this. As a trans person, I don't feel comfortable with lesbians. As a gay person, I don't feel comfortable with And, you know, I think the latter one as a gay person I don't feel comfortable with is a refrain that's been going on for far too fucking long. But what do we value as a community? And how are our values shaped when, you know, we grow up in the closet, in whatever kind of closet we've been contained within, and how then we've seen the world as we are broken in the representations we see out there. You know, today, you can browse Instagram or anything online, and you can see far more variety of gender and sexual representation than I did when I was a teenager growing up in the 80s, when there was no internet, when I had no visible role models. I didn't start to see some of these identity representations until I went out to my first gay bar. And then it was fairly um, constrained. It was gay, it was lesbian, and it was drag queens. That was it. I didn't know about trans people until maybe a year or two later. Things have changed. Even though there are challenges and, and oppression today, you can grow up as a kid and you can see a possibility represented in the media that may align with how you feel about yourself. So when I speak about old school drag and older gay men in a gay bar, I'm 54. So let's say around my age and older, those of us that, are, that survived AIDS from the 80s and grew up in that period, there's a lot of pain from that period. There are a lot of values that were about strictly survival. And when you are just trying to survive, that's a very different mindset and set of behaviors than excelling or personal liberation or self-actualization. The latter are the things that happen in our youngest part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, where we can think, we can logic, we can reason, we can talk like this about values and what we observed. Survival is the ancient parts of the brain, defensiveness, freezing up, or simply flight, getting yourself away from the situation so that you can go and hide. In survival mode, a value might be simply safety. Or simply being able to laugh at what we see at the outside world. But not opening up into the greater rubric of how society is evolving. As Jeffrey Yoanone, who I cited at the beginning of the episode, um, he and I were talking about this. And he reminded me, you know, like, look at how remarkable it is that we've gone from drag queens being seen as freaks, you know, essentially in the outside world now being celebrated in pop culture. And we have RuPaul, who's radically changed drag culture and turned it into a capitalist enterprise. Drag queens are now celebrities. Everybody wants to be a drag queen. Everyone thinks they can get their 15 minutes of fame on the stage at the local bar or possibly maybe on a TV show. Drag has been commercialized 
And with that comes a set of different problems. I think, for the most part, drag, when it had it, has lost its edge. It's lost its transgressive nature. It's no longer something to be seen as obscure or risky or what used to be the domain of a private club primarily for gay men. We also are living in a time of tremendous social change, even upheaval. Change is really difficult for people in general. Most of us don't want to change. We like things as they are. It makes us feel safe and secure and comfortable. Whenever we are affecting change, we are changing structures in our brain. We are, and with change, that's actually how we grow from a neuroplasticity perspective. Change allows us to develop new synapses in the brain to to think in different ways, to see the world in different ways. So if you are more closeted, be that your sexuality or, or, or Mm, protected might be a better world, living in a small town or in a very religious area, your mindset's going to be far more restricted and limited about what you can see as how things can change in the world, so to speak. And you go out on a Sunday to this bar in Toronto and you see the working class. And that doesn't mean these people aren't smart or intelligent, but the working class is going to have a certain set of values and a certain set of friendships and a certain set of social environments that are going to encourage certain ways of perceiving the world of what's right and wrong in its own set of values. We as the intellectual, radical, elitist left, um, and I would never call myself that, but that's when people really get upset that are more conservative in in their views and feel confronted and challenged and afraid of change. This social change is coming so quick and often with such a fury, some of us are ready to embrace it and be challenged by it and feel the discomfort of it and lean into it to be the change we want to see in the world. The majority of people can't handle that. They aren't ready for that. And pushing too quickly for change is difficult because, like I said, as humans, we don't like to change. And our unconscious, pre-programmed pattern behaviors will push back, will react, will defend. So I think, for example, if I was to have said something at the bar that night, I would have been asked to leave. Because it would have been too much of an affront in the moment to a much-beloved drag queen who was given license to speak in a prejudiced way against a race of people and in a transphobic way or in a trans-disrespectful way through the process of transitioning. Oh, that's funny. Ha ha. They don't mean anything by it. It's 2020, downtown Toronto. And at the same time, this brings me back to one of my challenges. And what I speak so much about is that this requires patience and compassion and empathy and teaching. But I think it requires a curiosity on my part and other people's parts who wish to make these changes happen, conversations with those who are stuck in the past, helping them to open up their minds, to understand that what they're hearing, what they're laughing at, what they're applauding is harmful, even if that isn't their intention. I would hope that most of the people that were laughing and applauding 
just weren't thinking critically enough about what was happening on stage. Someone said to me, but, you know, what's going to be funny in drag anymore? And I'm like, that's the wrong question. We can be subversive. We can be biting and satirical and funny. And we can do all of that without prejudice. We can do all of that without phobia. But it does mean that the performer may have to work a little bit harder and not be lazy. Because laziness is a kind of complacency. And when we're lazy, that's when we can be prejudiced. Because we're not thinking critically about how we're considering or perceiving other people's feelings or need for representation and acceptance and inclusion in society just as we so demand it of ourselves. So what about drag kings? Why don't we see very much of that? Is that the new subversive form of drag? Think for a moment about how RuPaul got called out, was it last year or the year before, for making the statement that they weren't going to allow drag performers unless they were cis men? It begs the question, why is it that men still get to dress as women? And why is it that men get all of the glory? Well, you know, that's a historical fact, right? There's the patriarchy. Men have already always tried to control. You know, even when exploiting the feminine, men seek to control and dominate social spaces. Back in the time of Shakespeare, men, male actors, played the roles of women. We have the term female impersonators. And that might have been men dressing up as women who weren't necessarily gay. But very, very, very rarely did we see women trying to dress up or pass as men. Yes, a couple of representations in Hollywood. Generally speaking, I would say drag is an affront to heteronormativity. It still expresses male dominance. So that even if it's not wholly accepted, it is perceived by gay men and society at large as better than a woman doing the same thing, simply because women don't yet, still don't have equal representation. This is obviously a longer show, and I'm going to wrap it up here over the next few minutes, but I just want to say that I've never really cared for drag. And perhaps that influences how I see drag overall. But here's the thing. You know, I know people that are like, oh my God, so-and-so is performing. We have to go out. I've never been that. Has it been internalized homophobia? Has it been the fear of the feminine? I don't know. I don't think so. I know for myself, I find authentic femininity in gay men very attractive. I don't find it attractive when it's forced, when that person is still trying to figure out who they are, and they're literally acting effeminacy. When a gay man just owns it, I could point out some people I follow on Instagram, and I don't have Instagram open up the moment, who I find incredibly sexy because they own it. That's the difference. I find authenticity sexy. And then I don't give a fuck about how you represent. Because it's who you truly are, as opposed to you're trying to figure out who you are. When I've watched drag, it's usually just been there in the background, or I've gone out to a bar over the years that I've been out, and it's the performance is happening. And it's not to say that I can't enjoy it. I certainly have. And when I have, and when I've appreciated drag, it was truly funny. The performer was either just really great, they did an amazing job, they were just a consummate performer, 
or that it was truly subversive. Maybe they had their own material and they were just, or they were amazingly artistic with how they could move or how they costumed. Or using the most apropos term, they were fierce. They did something that was just so good. And there wasn't prejudice and there wasn't this banter that made people uncomfortable, made me feel uncomfortable because what they were saying is actually problematic. And that's not to say that there's, there's no value in being an amateur. Let's say you're just doing your first few performances as a drag performer. Hey, you're not going to be great, but that's like anything. The first few pieces of writing you do, the first few podcasts you do, the first time you start a brand new job, you're not going to be great until you've had six months, a year, or five years into that experience. But it doesn't mean you need to be sloppy or prejudiced or swear every third word, or say bitch every fifth word, that just cultivates a laziness and misses the opportunity to be truly artistic and creative. When, drag, when a drag performance leaves me thinking, leaves me impressed, or challenged to see gender in a unique way, that's when drag is still truly transgressive. But when it reinforces prejudice or jokes from within the experience of pain perhaps the performer shaming themselves about their own physical appearance having a certain amount of excess body weight does that reinforce the problem within the confines of that small group that bar that is then laughing at that person's shared expression of their pain and perhaps allowing it to flow over into making fun of another race or that Europeans have so much bigger dicks than North Americans or these are the weaknesses and the challenges that I was witnessing that evening. And it could, it, it made me think of that song. So, so perfectly sung by Roberta Flack, the ballad of the sad young men. And there's no way of really knowing, knowing whether that was exclusively written about gay men at the time that it was written. But it just makes me think, you know, it paints a picture of the search for love and the desperate search for love and trying to find that in the darkness of a bar that might have odors of cigarettes back at the time this song was written. You could still smoke in public spaces. And beer spilt on the floor and the loneliness that people see and sort of the reinforcement of that private space, which was the only place that you could be freely yourself, yet at the same time not so out and not yet proud of yourself that this loneliness and despair would be further increased simply with the intake of alcohol and the desperate need for human connection, love, authentic expression, and touch. So the next time you go out to a drag performance, listen. Because drag still has a place in the community, in gay bars, at prides, where it's seen as a representation of our community. And I'm not espousing that as being right or wrong. I'm just saying that's how it's seen by the outside world. RuPaul has made a name for themselves, put themselves on the map 
and in so doing has done so for drag overall. Ask yourself, how is this representative of our community? And if it's not, how can you make it better? How can you more critically observe drag? Less for its presentation and more for what is said by the performer that perpetuates prejudice, internalized homophobia, transphobia, self-deprecation. We are all challenged by these elements to various degrees. But when we foster it and applaud it within the dark corners of a gay bar, we do not make progress. Thank you for listening and think queerly.